obviously you can see we're not in Job this morning. We are looking at the life of Anna. I call her a faithful witness because that's what she is, uh, but really looking at someone who lived a dedicated life. I was reading a book this week. It's filled with daily stories of the lasting and grounding effect women have had in the advance of the gospel. And the short biography for May 13th was of Isabella Graham and her daughter, Joanna Bethune. Isabel was widowed at the age of 30. She had three daughters under the age of five, and she was pregnant with her son, uh, her husband, who was a British surgeon. Uh, they were living in the United States, and, and so when he passed away, she moved back to her native Scotland and actually took a job uh, being the administrator and teaching uh, at a boarding school, uh, at a very large boarding school, and came back to the United States only because it was John Witherspoon, who was her former pastor in Scotland and now the president of what is now Princeton University, had encouraged her to return to the U.S. And so in 1789, she did. She came back to the States, moved to New York City, and established a school for young women. Uh, through the years, she was very active. She established uh, many, I call, would be what we call nonprofit organizations, benevolent societies is what they would call them, uh, to help poor widows with small children. She started another society to help orphans and a bunch of other opportunities she took. Now, her daughter, Joanna, had moved back with her uh, to the States, and with her mom, she would be involved in all these charitable organizations. Uh, she ended up marrying uh, a guy named Divi Bethune, thus her, ba- her last name. He was a Scottish immigrant who ran an import-export business out of New York City, and he generously supported the work that his wife and mother-in-law were involved in. Uh, In the course of business, Joanna and her husband uh, went to England, just obviously import-export, so they're taking care of things, and they encountered uh, what was called Sabbath schools or Sunday schools there, run by Robert Rakes, uh, schools to train poor children who were not given an education at home, nor were they given any spiritual instruction. Oftentimes, these were factory workers who had only Sunday off, And so as they saw that, they had a passion to come back to the States and actually start some of these schools in New York. So in 1803, Joanna and her mother started a Sunday school class in New York City, and then on top of that, encouraged other women to do the same. Now, what they were teaching were, they were teaching kids to read and write. They taught them scripture memorization. They taught them hymns and catechisms, and basically they were teaching them to be educated to to be able to advance, but also to know scripture and to grow in the Lord. Again, kids who had no education nor spiritual instruction at home. At the beginning, as is often typical, the clergy were not okay with this, probably because they didn't start it. Um, Typical thing, but they were worried about the rights of parents and the rights of the church. But even with their somewhat disinterest in this, uh, the Sunday school movement kept growing. By 1816, Joanna felt there was a need to have an organization to encourage uh, the development of more Sunday school classes and to encourage more Sunday school teachers. And so her husband told her this. It was in a letter. It says, my dear wife, there is no use in waiting for the men. Do you gather a few ladies of different denominations and begin the work yourselves? And isn't that the same today, right? No point waiting on the guys. They're going to sit on their hands. And that's what her husband said. So on um, January 24th, 1816, she organized what was called a Sunday school union, and within six years, they had 600 teachers in New York City and were teaching 7,000 kids a week with 30 graduates from their work already training for ministry. And I wrote down here two women who, with their own initiative, 
and without undermining Scripture. So when you look at the clergy being upset, it was not a biblical reason they were upset. Um, with their own initiative, launched out to train children for life in Christ, and in so doing had a tremendous impact and influence. I wanted you to see something about these women. These were women in what I would call the normal flow of life. There's a widow of a surgeon who taught and administered for a living. She took over a school. She ran the school. She taught in the school. She comes to the United States. She starts a school. She runs a school. She teaches in a school. But on top of that, she went ahead and got involved in organizations to help people who are struggling, people like herself, a poor widow, and, and different things, and then and got involved in the Sunday school movement. I look at Joanna, who is married to a regular businessman, import-export business, a business that she and her husband both use for the purpose of God's kingdom. You know what's interesting? I know nothing about her husband's business. I don't know what he imported. I don't know what he exported, but I do know this. He was involved in a Sunday school startup in the United States. He encouraged his wife. He supported his wife. He walked alongside, and they, they, they did these things together. But I want you to see something here. They used what they had for the purpose of God's kingdom. Regular people with full-time working lives, dedicated to God's work, and sold out for his purpose, using what God had given them for the work of the ministry. And if you look at their lives, say, wow, how in the world do people get like that? Well, if you open Scripture, and we're at one right now, you find plenty of great examples of that type of dedication from the people in the Bible. And what's interesting, especially women in the Bible, uh, when you look at Christ at the cross, the men are gone, the women are there. When you look at the support of the ministry, the bulk of the people supporting Christ's ministry as he walked on earth were women. And so as we walk through this and we dive in, we're looking at a specific person this morning, and it's Anna. I've been fascinated by her. One, it's just three verses. There's no reference to her anywhere else in Scripture except here in Luke. And we talk about Anna, three verses given to her, but a lady living a dedicated life. And here's what's fascinating, a witness of the Messiah's arrival. And you might say, well, Kenny, a bunch of people witnessed it. And by that, I mean this. Luke, the historian, in recounting, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, the last person he lists as somebody to prove his proof text, his proof person, is Anna. Anna is the final witness of the Messiah's birth, the highlighter, the mark that's there. And so I want us to kind of look at Anna this morning, and the idea is this. Can we pull from our life characteristics? One, I hope that we can apply uh, to everyone. Uh, ladies can apply it, but also the men can see what she did in her life and what was unique about her life. And there's components of her existence that we all are not going to be able to emulate. She, she lost her husband after seven years of marriage. She's 84 now, uh, depending how you read the Greek. She's 84. She's been a widow for 84 years. It makes her either 100 or 84. She's an older lady. And so not all of us are going to walk the same path she did, but we can emulate her characteristics. Now, we're introduced to her. We're told out of the gate that she's a prophetess. And I want to give the meaning of that word uh, in the New Testament. It was a woman who spoke the word of God. She was uniquely devoted to proclaiming God's truth, not as a preacher standing in front of a group of people, but as she ministered in the temple, she was sharing the truth with everyone. So she was given over to God's truth. Her communication was for God's benefit. And so God calls her a prophetess. She is a proclaimer of God's truth. She was the daughter of Phenuel from the tribe of Asher. She was elderly. We know that. She had been a widow for at least 60 years, um, married for only seven before losing her husband. And she was, it says, always at the temple. 
And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Luke wasn't saying that as like she's always at the temple unless she's home, but she was always at the temple as in she was always there and lived at the temple. I want to give us a little context of these three verses because this is a a line of witnesses. So after Christ's birth, you're going to see him being dedicated at the temple. And that's what's happened. Jesus is brought to the temple by his parents to be dedicated. And really the word is presented to the Lord because he's the firstborn. And so he should be presented to the Lord uh, by his parents. And there they encounter a man named Simeon. And Simeon is an interesting character because he had a special revelation from the Lord that he would see the Messiah before he died. Now he also ministered at the temple. Common sense will tell us that Anna and Simeon knew each other, that she was aware of his special revelation that she knew that he was looking for the Messiah to come. And so Anna hears Simeon speak to Joseph and Mary. I'm going to read that for us. If you look at Luke 2, 25 through 35, this is Simeon. This is, this is what Anna's going to walk on because God in his infinite wisdom reveals about Anna this, that she hears this and immediately takes action. So she doesn't delay. And so it doesn't go into a lot of explanations about what she was thinking Uh, You can understand this. She was quick on her feet because she went immediately to do certain things. But I want you to kind of see what she would have saw as she walked in on this event. And so, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him, waiting for Jesus to come. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Again, not necessarily what a mom wants to hear when you're dedicating the baby, that this is going to cause heartache. And then we move right to Anna. So as she is walking in, she sees Simeon blessing this child, uh, she's an intelligent woman who can put two and two together. She hears what he says, and then we, we're introduced to this next witness. And what's interesting is, and I want you to note this, she directly begins sharing God's truth and redemption. There is no delay in what she does. She moves from revealed truth that she's been praying for, and we'll talk about that, to immediately proclaiming the truth to others. But before we dive into that, Scripture tells us a bit about how she lived her life And we see that as we start out, her complete dedication to God's purpose. It encompasses the bulk of the verses, actually. Her actions are in 38, who she is, 36 and 37. It was there one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with the husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about four score and four years, 84. So either she was a widow for 84 years, making her over 100, or she was 84 years old as a widow, having only been married with her husband seven years before he passed away. And the Greek can go both ways. There is no perfect division there. Uh, Either way, uh, if you're 84, I apologize in advance, but 
if you take that context, you're old. If you take the other one, you got a few years before you're old. So um, I think the, however you want to do it, you can run with it. Either way, she's described as being older in that context. And then it says, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. Now, I want us to understand something. Uh, losing a spouse is never easy. It is a difficult process in no matter what era you live in. But it was especially difficult during this time because a woman, and harder for a woman than for a man, had very little recourse or resources. And so understand this, as she loses her husband early in life, the prevailing wisdom of the day was to find another husband, to find a, a way to be involved in the family, to find resources, because you're out of your father's home, and now you need another home. You're almost homeless in this sense. And so she was looking at a, a difficult time, a struggle to sustain daily living. That's food and a roof over your head. Very limited resources. Anna would have had to live either on charity or possibly some family inheritance but in either case, it allowed only for the basic necessities of life. Now, she has the option to remarry. That would have been very typical and normal in that society. But instead, she chose to not let the loss early in life or her financial circumstance limit her usefulness and service to God. Instead, and I put with steely determination, she lived all of life to serve her Lord, teaching others of him. And by the way, she didn't just start teaching after she saw Simeon. She's described as a prophetess before she sees Simeon. So I want you to see as, as people are coming to the temple, uh, probably specifically women, she was going to be engaged in teaching those women. Oftentimes they would come together to worship. A lot of separation would take place between men and women. And so she was involved in teaching for all these years. It's not like this is a new thing we see in 38, but instead part of who she was. And so she is going to give all of her life to teach others of him, regardless of her life's difficulties. And so we look at how she lived, and I put here, we find persistence. She departed not from the temple, but served God night and day. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Luke was being very specific about Anna not leaving the temple. This was not, you know, we say that he's always here. Uh, he's always at the gym. He's always on the couch. Hopefully he's always working. Maybe that's a better one, but it, it's, all these, we use that expression, but we don't mean that someone is there 24-7. Luke is saying she's there 24-7. And the likelihood is this, that she was given a small apartment at the temple. There were, there were small apartments set aside for the priests that would come and serve for two weeks. So they would come from the surrounding area. They would come. They had to do their, their service for the Lord. They would stay there for two weeks. And the indication without, without getting all the details was that she likely was given one of those because of her service. They put her up at the temple there. And so she lived on site and served constantly. I put here as a note, and this is what I hope you can take away. Her dedication to God's purpose was life-altering. And don't miss that. Her dedication to God's purpose was life-altering. She lived for him and to make him known. She chose to commit her years uh, to his service. Now, I know right away, and I want to kind of say it, we can't all do what she did. We're all not going to lose a spouse early on in marriage. We're all not going to go live at the temple grounds, move to Jerusalem and, and, and move in. It'd be a little awkward now anyway, because there's no temple there. So, um, but either way, you, you would, we can't all do exactly what she did, but I want you to see something about her life. Here is a person 
who allowed God's purpose to alter her plans. And so here's the question I put. I wonder if God's purpose can alter our lives. Can God's purpose for us change what we do, or does his purpose always play second fiddle to our own purposes? And it's a matter of priority here where we're placing it. Because the easiest thing is to say, I'm not Anna, I haven't lost a spouse, I don't live at the temple, not for me, someone else will do it, and I'll support her charitably. That's my way of getting away from this idea of God's purposes altering my life. We might look at the people before us, the, the illustration we're given, say, look, that guy was a businessman, he needed to do his work, and he stayed doing his work, and that's what he did, and someone else did something else, but what we miss is his, his constant involvement in that ministry. See, God asks, or better yet, demands all of us for his purpose. I know we live lives in this world. You accomplish careers. You own businesses. We enjoy hobbies. We enjoy vacations. And look, we're supposed to do that well. Whatever your profession is, if you're an engineer, then you should be the best engineer. Your, your work is a testimony to God and what he's given to you, the talents and skill and the education. And we do it with all of our passion and life. But the reality is, is can God's purpose alter your purpose? Can God use your engineering for whatever he wants it to be used for? Or do I take my career and say to God, my career first, then your purpose. My business first, then your purpose. My hobbies first, then your purpose. My vacation per first, then your purpose. And look, I've touched on everything. None of you can miss this one, right? Because somebody has a career out here. Somebody has a business out here. Someone has a hobby out here. And look, Heather and I are going on vacation. So we've got all this covered here. What comes first or do those things take priority and God is second fiddle? And what Anna tells us when we look at being dedicated to God's purpose is that what God has given me, that I'm to do well, that I'm to execute well, that I'm supposed to be the best I can be at. God is not interested in sloppy work that's blamed on him. He's interested in the best work, but he's interested in your heart priority being fixed on his purpose. C.S. Lewis remarked this, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something that is going to take the whole of you. And that's what we're supposed to live our lives like, where God takes the whole of us. Sienna gave the whole of herself to God, but that persistence had a clear direction. It was given to a godly priority. She served God with fastings and prayers. Now, fastings in the New Testament, you're going to see, are often tied to prayer, even in the Old Testament, Anna denied herself food so that she could be singularly focused on passionate prayer. I remember years ago, I'm, I'm, I'm just 17, 18, 16, whatever it is, and I remember there was a pastor that would fast, and he would fast for 40 days. But it was obvious that he was fasting, and that's what he talked about. And I'm not saying he did it for the wrong motive, but whenever I visit the church, I'm like, he's fasting. That's skinny pastor. He's not eating right now. And then he plumped back up and fast. I don't know if it was a diet thing or a fasting thing. And so he would talk about what he was drinking, the fact that he wasn't eating. And here's the reality. Uh, that's not the fasting God's talking about. When you look at Anna, she didn't sit around telling people, hey, I'm fasting and look weary and hungry. That's the thing that I took away. I remember none of the guy's messages. I remember him looking gaunt and tired. 
and grayish skin looking because he wasn't eating. That's all I remember. I remembered all the physical components of his fasting. I don't know anything about what he preached or what he was praying about. But Anna wasn't like that. You weren't going to walk in the temple and say, oh, she looks like she's wasting away. You know, you knew she was fasting and praying because she wasn't doing the normal thing at the normal time. She wasn't preparing food and she wasn't eating food because instead of eating and preparing food, she was praying. And that's where the fasting and prayer came together. Her prayers covered many components. We can assume that she was praying for God's people, praying for a godly nation, praying for them to be a witness to the nations. These are all things God had given Israel to do. But her primary focus, and we can see it by how she responds to Christ's coming, was she was praying for the coming Messiah. She knew of his imminent coming to earth, and we're going to see that soon. She knew scripture, by the way. This was not a scripturally illiterate person, but instead someone who had read scripture, understood scripture, and applied it correctly. And her heart's plea was for him to come to earth. She was praying for Jesus. I put as a thought question, I wonder if we seek his return as earnestly as she saw it as coming. Have you ever looked at your prayer life? And, and uh, I find myself doing this, so I'm, I'm self-condemning here. And I pray, and I'm like, yeah, I, I'd like to live my life, God, then you come back. Can you, can you let me have the full gamut of my years here, and then we'll go? I don't care that my kids don't get the full gamut of years. I just want my full gamut of years. And see, that, that shows something out of whack in my disposition Because she was praying for his coming and we're supposed to be earnestly seeking his return. Her hope, her longing was was the same as all true believers through the years. It matched Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah. She longed for the redeemer that would crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15, she was looking forward to the seed of Abraham that would be a blessing to all nations. Look, her priority was Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And now she's looking at the other end of the cross, but I want you to see something about her life. Her priority was Christ. And it tells us something about what our priorities should be. So you can have a life that you think is dedicated to God, but it has to be lined up with his priority, and his priority is him. It's Christ. It's his salvation. So we have to ask ourselves, to what level do we persist in God's purpose? How driving is God's purpose in your life? And it's really simple How easily are you distracted from God's purpose? What takes precedent? And again, I'm going to say this. You need to do your job well. So I get it. When you're at the office at 930 or on the job site at 930, you need to do your job. You can't be daydreaming. But what takes precedent and how persistent are you in God's purpose? Can it or does it alter the trajectory of your life? Does someone look at your life and say, huh, That was an amazing engineer that happened to be a Christian. Or, wow, he was a Christian engineer, and so his path was different because he was a believer. Not just he has an extra little coat or an extra bracelet on his hand or an extra lapel pin that tells somebody that, oh, it's Christian doing this. Instead, does it change the trajectory of your life? And how that looks in everyone's life, uh, we're not given that insight. That's something you can know with God, but can God's purpose alter the trajectory of your life? We read about people that it did. We read about missionaries and, and, and we read about those ladies that, that did something completely different, overcome hurdles. But of course, when you read a one-page biography of two ladies, you're not seeing all the tension and pressure that they went through. 
You're not reading of the heartache of this widow. Four kids, 30 years old, lost the surgeon, the doctor, husband, back in Scotland, running a school, teaching in the school. We're not seeing how hard every day was. We know every day was hard, but can God's purpose alter the trajectory of your life? And if we are going to allow God's purpose to alter the trajectory of our life, are we actually on God's purpose? See, I see a lot of people that are thinking they're serving Christ. They write about serving Christ, but when I read what they write and I look at their life, I realize they're not looking at God's priorities at all. Christ is not forefront. Their version of Christ is forefront. Their twist on Christ is forefront maybe, but not Christ. And so we have to look, is God's purpose able to alter our lives? And if it does, is it altered in line with his priorities? Anna was a woman dedicated to God's purpose, a dedication that remained fixated on Jesus Christ and his salvation. It was a dedication that she kept all of her life. We get to see the end of years of ministry. And we fast forward, and and again, it's really easy to forget about all the days and nights in between. But all of that was grounded in her saturation in God's word. And this is a critical part of who she was. I'm just reading the first part of 38A, and it takes a little bit of thinking to see it. I want you to go all the way back to the introduction. She hears Simeon saying what he says about Christ. She knows Simeon. She knows Simeon's promise. She knows the Bible. And so 38A, and she coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. As Simeon is blessing this child that he is now knows is the Messiah, it's not revealed to him by Joseph and Mary. God obviously reveals that to him. She acts upon what she knows. And I want you to see something about her character. And this is what I, I love about who she is. She has no special revelation. She is discerning of scripture. If you want to copy somebody, we're not copying Simeon. I'm not taking anything away from Simeon, but he had the blessing of a special revelation. You're not getting that. You have God's special revelation, and it's his word. Here's what's amazing. Anna had the Old Testament scriptures, and she was able to discern the truth from that. And so as she is giving thanks likewise, and you're looking at someone, the only way she could do that was by being saturated in God's word. See, the nation of Israel had no excuse to be surprised by the coming of their Messiah. If you were reading scripture, you knew it. The fact is, as one writer notes, messianic expectation at that time was running at an all-time high. And here's why. Daniel's famous prophecy about Messiah the Prince, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, had practically set the date. And it does set the date. You go to Daniel and you you have a perfect prediction right to when Christ arrives. Actually, the date that Daniel's predicting of Messiah the Prince is fulfilled in AD 30 when Christ triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. This is why when John the Baptist comes on the scene, people wonder if he is the Christ. He's at the same time as Jesus. They're born six months apart. Yet sadly, so many people miss recognizing Jesus as Messiah because he did not fulfill their earthly expectations. And that's a huge breaking point And it happens still today. Let me rephrase that again. The reason people missed the Messiah was not because they didn't have the information about the Messiah. It's because he did not fulfill their earthly expectations. Those expectations twisted their understanding of Scripture and who the Messiah would be. 
And so when you read scripture and you want the Messiah to be a political leader that frees you from Rome and gives you what you want politically, I want the nation back. We want to rule. We want the Messiah here. We want Rome crushed back. We want everyone else that's been pressing in on us. It's over. We're Israel. We rule. And they've twisted now scripture to fit that expectation. That was not the case with Anna. She had discerned the truth of Scripture, and I underline that word in my notes, discerned. She was a discerning woman. She not only read Scripture, she understood Scripture. She knew what they meant. She hadn't polluted Scripture with worldly anticipation. She hadn't twisted it all up, and so she reasoned from a correct perspective. So coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, She was able to perceive what had taken place and respond accordingly. Why? Because she was saturated properly in all of God's word. By the way, that would have been just the Old Testament. She was not distracted by the temporal expectations of that day. She was not looking forward to a political leader that would crush Rome. Instead, she anticipated the arrival of the true king of kings. She looked beyond her culture, what was the hot topic of that day, and saw eternity in perspective. She knew Simeon and his expectation left for life to see Jesus and was able to then actually know that for whom she had been praying had arrived. She had been praying for Jesus and she knows that Jesus has come. Remember, all the focus of her prayers was the coming of the Messiah. And so she knew God's word was saturated in it, and she was able to correctly perceive, that's the word discern, when, she, when the promised Messiah had arrived. I put here, do we have the right perspective on God's word? Are we saturated in it? So that's part one of the question. Are you saturated in God's word? To be saturated in God's word, you have to read it. You have to do more than listen to me preach about it. That's for sure. You have to be reading it day in and day out. It has to be part of who you are, part of your life. That is saturated. And then the second thing is it cannot be tainted with your worldly expectations. See, too often we come to Scripture and we have expectations for Scripture. We want Scripture to be a band-aid on our feelings. We want Scripture to be something that tells us a a truth for the day that we can run with. And I'm not saying it's bad to have a band-aid for your feelings or have a truth for the day, but I want you to realize how you're approaching Scripture. You're approaching Scripture to do something for you instead of approaching Scripture to understand who God is and what He's done. And there's two different approaches to Scripture. You see, all of Israel is the example of someone approaching Scripture saying, now God, I'd like to read about a political ruler who's going to take over Rome. Ah, I found it. Look, it wouldn't take any effort at all. You want a faith? I can find you a verse to match it anywhere in the Bible. Give me 24 hours and I can find you a statement verse that will align with whatever skewed view you want to have. And that's what we see running rampant. But when you're truly saturated in God's word, as Anna was, you're going to walk to Scripture to find out about God, not find out about you. And to learn what he has done and his purpose and and his plan for all eternity. And that's what she did. We too often, though, are wandering with our worldly expectations to the Bible and finding things we can pluck out and misapply. And here's the thing. You say, well, Kenny, I read the whole book, and the whole book seems to tell me exactly what I want. Yes, because you walked in with your worldly expectation, and you twisted God's word to say what you wanted it to say. 
See, Anna knew God's word and understood it correctly. And I'm going to keep saying this word. She was discerning. That's what discernment is. The ability to make a judgment about something, to accurately see it and apply it. That is what discernment is. And we're called, by the way, as believers to be discerning. So every single one of us is supposed to be able to go to God's word, not with our worldly expectations, and to see it and then to apply it to our lives correctly. So when the promised Messiah arrived, she lost no time at all before she began a constant proclamation of God's salvation. Look here. And spake of him, it closes out, to all them that look for redemption in Jerusalem. Now, I didn't uh, put this in my notes, but I just remembered I was, I was saying it. Part of who she is that I love is that she doesn't sit around and wait. She didn't go sit in a corner and ponder truth that she knew. She didn't hide out and, and revel in the fact that her answer prayers had come true. And, and this is not picking on Simeon at all. He's ready to die, right? Lord, take me away. And he might have been ancient. And he needed to get out of there, right? So I get that. But Anna, who is at least 84, sees the truth and her Role, let's go all the way back to how she's described, a prophetess, which again, let's take it in context. She wasn't making predictions about the future. She was a person who proclaimed God's word and his truth. So who she is and her ministry at 84 or maybe 100 something, immediately, without any delay, she goes to make him known. Now, I want you to know this because I know what my mind does. I think of her living at the temple and I think she's a nun, right? That's just like, all right, she's at a convent. But that's not the truth of the temple. I wrote down multitudes came from all around the world. They came to sacrifice and worship. And actually the first word I wrote was millions came because that's the truth. When Christ was crucified, we're talking hundreds of thousands. We're, I think 150 to 200,000 people participated in his triumphal entry as he comes down into the valley and they're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. So it goes all through the streets. People came constantly to the temple. So this is no isolated existence that she has. Instead, the multitudes are coming to her. And what happened was they became the audience of a consistent gospel presentation. Anna was not shy or selective about sharing truth. She spoke with anyone who was looking for real redemption. You know who doesn't listen to Anna? People who are coming there to check a box because they're not interested in real redemption. The people who are coming there for political reasons. They have no interest in Anna. But people who are coming there honestly seeking real redemption, well, her words would have, would have caught up with them. In other words, she wasn't in a corner whispering about this. She was telling anyone who was looking for truth would have heard it from her. She spoke about the true Messiah, not some fabricated deliverer that everyone wanted, not someone who give them the politics that they wanted, not someone that give them the authority they wanted, but instead spoke of the true Messiah. And so true worshipers who were looking for the truth would have heard it from her. And I put here, Anna showed immediate boldness, confidently proclaiming the gospel truth. Here's a question. Do we share her confidence and purpose? Do we align with what she did? We know the truth. We know the Messiah. We know how life-altering that is. But are we as passionate as she is to get that truth out to the world around us? Here's what I love. She had prayed and fasted for the coming Messiah. And after his arrival, spent her time now making him known. Notice 
the shift. There's only three verses. We have very limited to pull from. But she spent all her time in prayer and fasting. And now she's spending all her time letting people know about the Messiah. I'm not saying she stopped praying and fasting. I'm just saying that we see a movement and I am expecting the Messiah and praying for him. And when he's here, she didn't rock back on her heels and say, my job is done, but instead took the next charge forward and she made him known now. And here's the question. Are we making our Savior known? Are we proclaiming him to the world? Do people know it? Do they see it? If a true worshiper bumped into you, would they be pointed to Christ constantly? See, he is no less real and redemptive today than he was when she saw him. So let's proclaim him as boldly as she did. Anna completed Luke's line of witnesses of Jesus' birth, of the Messiah's arrival, and she could not wait to tell his story. And don't miss the significance of that. Every component of Scripture is important. We've talked about this. As you read through Scripture, don't miss the fact that she's the final witness brought to the table. That wasn't an accident on Luke's part. It wasn't an afterthought on Luke's part. It was a culmination of the witnesses that would have pointed to Christ. And he ends, and I love this, with somebody who is actively witnessing. Again, I'm taking nothing away from Simeon at all, so don't take this as a negative. But Simeon's job was to know that he would see Christ and he proclaims Christ and he says, God, take me home. This was my purpose. But see, Anna's purpose was a perpetual witness. And that's why you see her realizing the truth through discernment of Scripture and then making him known. MacArthur notes this, she thus became one of the very first and most enduring witnesses of Christ. She is the one telling people, this is redemption. This is what you've been looking for. This is what our scriptures have been telling us about. This is the whole story from Genesis all the way through. She is now the most enduring witness of Christ. She was dedicated to God's purpose, making his priorities forefront. She was saturated in God's word, able to discern and apply his truth because she was not distracted by worldly expectations. And I know I beat this over and over again in everyone's head. We did a whole uh, spiritual boot camp on God's word, but come to scripture and get rid of the garbage. Go to God's word to learn about God and what he wants you to do for him, how we should serve him, how we should worship him. We don't go to God's word to find out about ourselves and to see how good we are and how amazing we can do things. And so she removed all the distractions of her culture and all the worldly expectation and Ked went to God's word and was able to discern and apply it. And then she was bold in proclaiming her savior, passionate about making him known. So on Mother's Day, here we have Anna living a dedicated life for her Lord. Anna fulfilled in Christ and passionate about him and his redemption. And that's what I want you to see in her life. Because oftentimes we can look at the dedicated service and we can extol the service, and that's exactly what she would not want us to do. She would want us to see why she served. And she served because she was passionate about Christ and about his redemption. And I put as a question, do we share her characteristics? You see, Jesus was the all for Anna. It was everything. This is why we live. This is why we breathe. This is why I function again. I know we're not going to walk the exact same path as her, but we are called to have the same priority as she did. And her priority was Jesus Christ. 
From her fasting and praying before his arrival to his proclamation afterwards, her priority was Christ because Christ was her all. And so my closing question is this, is he your all? If you're going to emulate Anna, then Christ is your purpose and he's your priority and he's your passion and he's not second fiddle to your life and your agenda and your hobbies and your vacation, your business, your career, you name it, whatever it is. He's not second fiddle, but he's first priority. And that's what Anna teaches us. And what does her life proclaim? It proclaims somebody who was immediately proclaiming Christ and what I love continually proclaiming Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank for this opportunity we have to, to come together to study your word. We're grateful for the amazing biographies tucked into scripture. Your word is filled with examples that we can follow, obviously examples that we need to avoid as well. But here we have Anna, somebody who is dedicated to your purpose, to serving you, and how she took what life had tossed out to her, what was difficult and crippling, what oftentimes would make someone say, I, I, there's nothing else I can do, but instead she served you passionately for all those years. She studied your word and knew your word so that when your son came to earth, she was able to discern correctly that this was redemption for Israel. And then immediately she talked about that redemption. That became the topic of her conversation. I ask that as we look at her life and we see areas of weakness in our own, where we have put ourselves first, where we have not been saturated in your truth, when we've been dedicated to our own purpose, when we have been quiet and silent or negative even in proclaiming your truth, that we'll make an adjustment in our lives that will be changed, uh, to be convicted, to, to alter what we're doing, to emulate a wonderful example that you've given us in Scripture. Help us to have enough uh, fortitude and conviction to do that, to actually take a look and make sure that you are our focus and your purpose is our priority. In your precious and holy name, amen.